0: Welcome to the Sugar Hill Church Podcast. We hope and pray this message challenges and inspires you to live out God's truth in your life. You know, don't you at some point in your life, don't you have questions that you just want to ask God? Like, what's up with hurricanes? I mean, come on. I can live with a rainstorm. What's up with a hurricane? What's the deal on tornadoes? Uh, I mean, don't you want to know, okay, Lord, what's up with disease? What's up with all that? Don't you have questions that you really want to get answers to? And you know, we all kind of know that within us is not, we're never going to find the answer, but don't you want to kind of sit down with God and say, would you just give me a clue as to what's up with this? So this past week uh, I ran across a book that my dad once had and it's called Letters from Children. And these are questions that kids ask God. And so I thought I'd share them with you. Like the first one was in Sunday school, they told us what you do. Who does that when you're on vacation? Pretty good question, right? All right, so this next kid said, I read the Bible. What does begat mean? Nobody will tell me. I don't know what begat means, all right? Then on Halloween, I'm going to wear a devil costume. Is that okay with you? That's pretty good. Yeah, uh, I, this is one of my favorites. Uh, are you really invisible or is that just a trick? <laughs> yeah, and then you got this one. This, this one is really applicable here, okay? Is it true my daddy won't get into heaven if he uses his bowling words in the house? Did you mean for the giraffe to look like that or was that an accident? Instead of letting people die and making new ones, why don't you just keep the ones you got now? I like the Lord's Prayer best of all. Did you have to write it a lot or did did you get it right the first time? I have to write everything I write over again. It's okay that you made different religions, but don't you get mixed up sometimes? What does it mean you're a jealous God? I thought you had everything. My grandpa says, you were around when he was a little boy. How far back do you go? (laughs) And my favorite, I'm an American, what are you? We do have questions for God. And some of those questions are just not, we can't answer them. I mean, when folks look to a pastor like me and they'll say, well, what does God mean? And there's sometimes I have to say, I have no idea. You know, this is why the scriptures say, his, his ways are higher than my ways and your ways. And we, sometimes we just don't have the answer. But if I could sit down with God and I could have a question for the divine, I think what I would want to say is, okay, God, I've, I've read about, I've heard about, and I, I've taught about your love in this everlasting love. But how is it that you could actually love all of us? How could you love that guy? I mean, Lord, surely you don't love that lady as much as you do me. How do you have an everlasting love for everybody? I think that's a pretty good question. I mean, like, how does that happen? Because love in our life is really seen through a lot of different lenses. Like when I was in fifth grade, I remember my eyes first were caught by Sarah Ashley. She lived about four doors down from me, and I was madly in puppy love with her. She didn't even know I existed. Love hurts. And there are other times, when, when I was between my 10th and 11th grade year, uh, in high school, my dad moved us to Lubbock, Texas, and the first Sunday we were at church, my eye caught on to Deanna Johnson. And I thought, now, now I know what love is. And then I remember, Jenny and I, our first kind of date was was at Starbucks. And then we went and ate at, at Macaroni Grill and I knew I was gonna love her when she ate all the bread and left me none. And then we walked across the the parking lot to see a Denzel Washington movie. And she reached over and held my hand. And I watched this closely. She took her thumb and kind of did that on my hand. Which, ladies, if you don't know this, that's code for, wow, you're hot, man. I'm glad I'm with you. Or at least that's how I heard it. And then I remember getting off a plane and calling her and saying, I don't really know how to say this, but I think I love you. And she said, well, I've been waiting on that. So we decided when to get married one night, we couldn't pick a date, and so we just said, let's get married tomorrow. So I called my predecessor at this church, Richard, and I said, what are you doing at lunch tomorrow? And he said, well, nothing really, what you got in mind, would you marry us? And he said, well, sure. So we checked the girls out of school, we left work, we got married, we went back to work, they went back to school, life was good, except for the fact that two of our daughters decided to celebrate this new family by getting belly rings on the way back to school. Now, one of them, came down early that evening, and she was already kind of in tears, fessing up to what was going on, and that she had gotten this belly ring. And I was so grateful at the moment, thinking, thank God it's hers. Until she said, me and Amelia, mine, did it together. And their logic was, but we're new sisters. And I'm thinking, okay, that's not cool, especially when I found out it was on my credit card. So naturally, being the patient and caring, loving parents we are, Jenny and I both said, mm-hmm, that's coming out right now. So Sarah, who fessed up, took hers out, and I wanted to charge downstairs and go to war with Amelia on the belly ring. Jenny, being the more you know, patient of the two of us, leans over and says, just let it happen. You know." So it's clear by breakfast time before they go to school that Sarah hasn't yet confessed to Amelia that she's fessed up. So Amelia is not going to let us know. Because she is the better liar of the two. (laughs) And once we found out, our answer was this. That comes out right now. Now, you know what's interesting is we all see love through a different lens, don't we? Sometimes it's just awesome, and other times it's just brutal. And sometimes with the people we love the most, they see the worst of us, and yet they still love us. And then other times they see the best of us, and they still love us. But I have found that when we know love in such a wonderful way, we know when it's good and we know when it's really not good. But I hear these stories of God often where he has an overwhelming, intense love for us. And I I cannot wrap my heads around that humanly as to how can God have an everlasting love when he knows everything about us? How in the world can that happen? I guess the question that we might want to look at is, why doesn't God just make it clear? Why, why doesn't he just come down and make his existence just conclusively known? Why doesn't he just come and letting everyone know who he is, what he is like, and how much he loves us? And the answer to that is, I believe he already has when he sent his son, the Lord Jesus. Now imagine taking the most prized possession that you have. Relationship, stuff, whatever it is that you tra- cherish more than anything else in this life, and, and, and you're on this side of the room, and you're going to give that most prized possession to someone over here because you love them. Now, think about what your most prized possession would be, and you're willing to part with that most prized possession for them. You know, we, we all want what's great for our kids, don't we? And most of us have sacrificed, and most of us have given when we didn't have things to give, and most of us have given uh, of ourselves, and we have taken care of children. We had no way of being able to do that well. And yet in the middle of that, we do that because we love them. And I guess I suppose we see God in such a unique way. There was a little girl in fifth grade, and she was going to draw, as a part of her art uh, experiment, she was going to draw a picture of God. And her art teacher came by and said, honey, you know, what we're trying to teach you is how to replicate something into a drawing, and then you paint that. And nobody knows what God looks like, so you don't have something to frame that after. And she thought about it a minute, and then she looked at her instructor, and she said, well, when I get done, they'll know. Because she had a picture of God in her mind, and she knew what that was. Now, I grew up in a church with a lot of hellfire and brimstone. I grew up with a lot of don'ts and you can'ts. And I grew up with the belief that in many ways the Bible was there to kind of bust me and that Jesus and God and the Spirit of God, all of them were kind of cosmic FBI agents that couldn't wait to thump me on the head and let me know what I did was wrong. And so as a result, I had a season where my picture of God was like he was in a patrol car waiting to hit the blue button and he'd come up behind me and drag me out of the car and tell me what I'd done wrong. But I also remember that there was a time in my life where I realized that isn't what God's trying to describe at all. He's trying to describe an everlasting love that I can't do anything that would make him not love me. And so I thought to myself, wouldn't it be great if we could have an accurate view of what God says about himself and how he loves us and wants to saturate us with his love. So let's start today in the Old Testament in the book of Exodus. In the book of Exodus chapter 20, it begins in verse one saying, then God instructed the people as follows. I am the Lord, your God who rescued you from slavery in Egypt. Do not worship any other God beside me. Do not make idols of any kind, whether in the shape of birds or animals or fish, you must never worship or bow down to them. For I, the Lord, your God, God, am a jealous God who will not share your affection with any other God. Literally, God is saying to you, I am your God. I am here for you. In all these things in that text, what we're saying is this. Nothing else God wants to be ahead of him in our life. I love Jenny with all my heart, but God has a place and position in my life that is above her. Now she's right behind him and our kids are right behind her. But the fact of the matter is, when we get that out of position, this is when we start questioning the love of God. You know, I find that we want to give the best to our kids. So does God, he wants to give his best to you. Here is what makes this happen. And I've realized that as our kids have grown older, there are so so many things I can no longer demand of them. When they were little, I could demand when they got up and when they went to bed and what we ate and what we did. And as they matured and grow, then I've seen as they've grown that, you know, I have so very little influence in them in so many ways. And it's heartbreaking, isn't it parents? I mean, it just tears you apart to see it happen. And and this is how God looks at us, except that he never wants to surrender that control. Even as mature as we grow, he still has a place and a plan for us. You say, well, Chuck, how do I know that? In the book of Colossians chapter one, beginning of verse 15, the text says he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation for by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. Now leave that up for a minute guys, because this text says to you and to me that no matter what's going on in your life, God is the one that holds all this mess together. And you say, well, I wish he would hold it differently. I wish he would shape it differently. Well, if we were God, we might do that, but we're not. He is therefore he's in charge. And so he's holding this world together. He's holding this world together and he is allowing things to happen in our life, both for our good and his glory, even if we can't understand it or control it. So I guess the question remains, if God really loves us, how can we know it? If God really knows us, how can we know it? Well, if you went toward the end of the New Testament, toward the end of the Bible, you'd find in 1 John chapter 4, beginning of verse 7, you'd find this text. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Now, if we just put a period right there and stop, that's a mouthful. That's a sermon in one sentence, which basically says, if you're, if you're married here and your love is not founded on God, then your love will inevitably fail. This is why it's such an important thing that when we marry people, we marry them where they're equally yoked, where both are followers of Jesus and believers in Christ, because without this foundation, what happens is our human love can wane. Our human love can filter down. Our human love can grow dark. I I hear this phrase all the time with couples as they come into my office. You know, I love them, but I've kind of fallen out of love with them. And I believe that statement is both moronic and chicken. Because you see, I believe God says, this is how you're to love. Dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from God. So in essence, when we say we are falling out of love, what we're really saying is we don't trust God with our love and we don't trust that he is love. The text goes on and says, everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. There's the definition. God is love, love is God. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So God loved us enough To take his prized possession, his son, Jesus, send him here to be born in that manger in Bethlehem, to live a sinless, perfect life, to give his life as a ransom, as a payment for our selfishness and for our sin, to be buried, and then three days later to raise from the dead and come to give us life in abundance and life eternal for all those who believe. If God really loves me, how do I know it? Because he sent us his prized possession. And he didn't limit it. As a matter of fact, if you remember, the text says, not that we were perfect at that time, he gave it to us anyway. He gave us the gift. All we have to do is unwrap it. And there's not a rule that we follow, there's not a check mark that we place. It's not about how many times you've come to church or attended Sunday school or whether you gave or whether you went on a mission trip. It's simple, the fact that Jesus came as a gift from God, our creator, and said, this is how I want you to be right with me. This is my way for you to stay in love with me and to remember that I will always love you. God loves us also because he made us. God loves you because he made you. God loves me because he made me. Psalm 145, 17, here's what the text says. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and loving toward all he has made. God does not ever play favorites. He loves you with an everlasting love. You cannot make God not love you. But I know how hard that is to wrap our head around it. There's never been a creation God made that he didn't love. Now think of the worst possible person on the planet. Think of that one person you think now That exemplifies Satan and all of his evil. You got that person in mind? Watch this. That person is one prayer away from being your neighbor in heaven. This is how much God loves you. This is how much God loves them, because it's not on a scale of doing good or right. It is on a scale that he's already bought and paid for all of our selfishness and our sinfulness and says, I've provided a way that you can be right with me forever. And we call that trusting Jesus. We call that Jesus came for us. In Psalm 103, verse 14, the scripture says, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed, he remembers that we are dust. Guys, when you look at that text, what, what as a father has compassion. You know, my kids would say to you right now, there have been seasons that I've been full of compassion and there have been singers, seasons when I have been absolutely full of anger. Sometimes they don't know which one they're gonna get. Because in my humanity, I just don't always get it right. And by the way, you don't either. But what the text is saying to us is this, just like the perfect father that we can imagine, that always has compassion for his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Now we take that little word fear and we make the assumption that it's connected to some negative connotation. I am fearful of, I am fearing that, I am so afraid, I, have, I am filled with fear. But the text is literally saying it like this, if you took that one word, it would sound like this, as a father has compassion on his kids, so the Lord has compassion on those who are still in awe of his wonder and majesty when my children recognize i'm not the man upstairs i'm not oh god i'm not thank god i am the man upstairs no i am the thrice holy god of israel i am the creator and sustainer of all life i am the divine and when we stay in awe of him in that light then what happens is the bible says he has even greater compassion on us For he knows how we're formed. He knows that we were created out of dust and clay of this earth. God created Adam. And what did he say? That's very good. In Genesis 3, before he ever had to deal with sin, he had to deal with Adam being alone. And he saw him alone. and He created a woman. And all of a sudden, man said, yes, this is awesome. And then we look back in the season and we say the Lord had to fix that aloneness. He wants us to be in love. He calls for us to be in love. He longs for us to be in love. But he longs for us to be in love when he is the foundation of that love. God loves me because he's concerned about the details of my life too. I mean, depending on how you see it, it's like that little girl that was drawing God. Depending on how you see God... It has everything to do with how much you believe that he actually can love you. But God really does care about the details of your life. God doesn't just care that you go to church every week. God doesn't just care that you sacrificially give or you sing or you go on a mission trip. God cares about the parking space you get tomorrow. He cares about what you're eating for lunch today. He cares about the dress that you wore. He cares about the shirt that you bought. He cares about how you played that game. He cares about what you said about that person. He is intimately in our life and it's not invasive. It is within the thing that he has created. He has made us so that he could love us and made us so that we could love him knowing that he formed us and he's concerned about every detail in our life. In Matthew's gospel, the first book of the New Testament in chapter 10, verse 29, the scripture says, not even a sparrow worth, worth only half a penny can fall to the ground without your father knowing it. And the very hairs on your head are all numbered. Now for some of you, that's an easy count. For some of you, you've got a whole bush of hair up there and you'd think, how could he do that? It is because he knows what we think and he knows what we do and he knows what we're going to do and he knows what we've done. In the middle of all that he says, I love you with an everlasting love. I love you like you cannot wrap your head around. I love you more than you could ever convey humanly. I love you, I am concerned about every detail of your life. But you know what else he says, and I think this is absolutely awesome. I believe God loves us because he gave us fun. I believe he gave us fun. You've heard me say over and over again, if I could have one wish for our church, for the people in our congregation, our community, would be that we would learn to love Jesus with all our heart, our mind, and our soul, that we'd put him in the right priority of our life and be normal people. That we didn't take Jesus and be some freakazoid weirdo out there that nobody would want to hear, but we would literally be a normal person, captivated by the presence and the power and the forgiveness that only Jesus offers and we would be just as normal as we possibly can. You know why I long for that for our church? Because screaming at people for the last 200 years hasn't changed anything. But the love of Christ changes everything. It is hard to convey love when you're screaming in anger. It is hard to convey an everlasting love when you're worried about only the things that are temporal. When we say to folks, we really believe that the Bible is a big deal, it is more than just, hey, it's a big deal. It is a big deal in the sense that this is a roadmap for our life. When we we say Jesus is the single biggest deal, that when we put him in the right priority of of our life and our heart, we'll get everything else right. We believe that with every ounce of our being. And when we believe those two things, we will go serve people in love, even those that are not terribly lovely. And we will do that because he has given us life till we have fun. You see, I believe in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17, we understand that this is what we're to do, to enjoy this life. Tell those who have the riches of this world not to be arrogant and not to place their confidence in anything as uncertain as riches. Instead, they should place their confidence in God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Everything to enjoy. God gave you a set of ears so that you could enjoy music. God gave you a set of eyes so you could enjoy beauty. God gave you these wonderful gifts so you could enjoy them. When our grandkids come to our house where we live a couple of blocks away from a a railroad track, and when Jen and I first moved there, man, you could hear them all night long, and now we don't even know they're there. But when the grandkids come, man, they wanna see the train. They wanna hear that guy, you know, they wanna be a part of that. Because it's something that's just cool to them. It's cool. Like I, I, I remember like being in fifth grade and the first time I thought a girl was cute. My eyes lit up like this is good. They're not weirdos with cooties anymore. This is awesome. Just like, I, just like when, I, when I walk in at night and Jen has beating me home and I think this is so good. I love her. My eyes are captivated by that. I know what that is, it's fun. We, we do the weirdest stuff together and we have so much fun. I believe the Lord has called us. We ought to be fun. You ought to come to church and it'd be fun. I've heard all my life and preachers have said this over and over again. And there's some preachers around the country saying it right now. God didn't call you to be happy. God called you to be holy. Well, you know, I believe that that's a true statement, but why can't you be both? Why can't you be holy and be happy? Because the happiest people I know are seeking after holiness. And the holiest people I know are the people that are seeking after happiness. And I believe the Lord has given us all these things that we might enjoy them, especially taste buds. Can you imagine life without a fried shrimp po' boy? Seriously, can you imagine life without that red hot Krispy Kreme sign going on? Can you imagine life without a hot roll with honey butter slathered on it, that when you take a bite of it, it drips off your chin. And before you wipe it off or care if it got onto your shirt, you go back for another bite. What would life be like without a good steak on the grill with a baked potato all with bacon and cheddar and chives and sour cream? Oh man, throw a little cream corn on top of that and fry some okra. Come on, can I get one? Amen. See, I could have said something wonderful about Jesus and you're going to sit there like, what? But I throw fried okra in and you're on it, man. But he gave us these taste buds for a reason. He wants us to enjoy this life. I would long for our church to say we love Jesus with all of our heart, and we are so stinking normal that we don't scare people away from the gospel and the love of God. God loves you because he has plans for you. Isn't that wonderful that somebody's got a plan for you? I don't know about you, but I have people tell me all the time what their plan for me is. Have you ever noticed that? It's like everybody has a plan for your life. Because if you don't meet their expectation, you must be off their plan. But God comes along and trumps all those plans and says, I have a plan for your life. In Jeremiah chapter 29 verse 11, here's what the scripture says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. God always wants to give us his best. God always wants his kids to have better. God always wants us to know his plan is where we have victory. Now, the scripture says that Jesus, his son, is praying for you. That nonstop, Jesus, God's son, who came to give us life, who gives us a right relationship with God, the scriptures say that he is praying for us. Now, for us to go on the path of God, we are walking with God, his son Jesus, as he's praying for us. For us to go the opposite direction and to go apart from God's plan for our life, we literally have to step over a praying Jesus for us to go our own way. You see, God may not force you to his way, but he also knows that when you are astray, he may love you enough to bring you back. And maybe that's your story right now. Maybe you've wandered enough from God's plan for your life. You see, this is why Jesus said, I have come to give you life and I have come to give it to you the fullest. I have come to give you life that you might have life, that you might enjoy the fullness of Jesus. He didn't come to give us a relationship. He didn't come to give us, or he didn't come to give us a religion. He didn't come to give us a denomination. He came to give us a relationship with God, our creator, and it would be a relationship based and built on love that was never going to end. Watch this. God loves you because he sent Jesus to die for you. Romans chapter five, verse eight says, but God demonstrates his love toward us in this. While we are still sinners, Jesus Christ died for us. You know what's the good news there? God's love is not dependent on your action. The scriptures never say you get all your junk together and you get all your stuff right. And you stop drinking and cussing and smoking and dipping and whatever else you do. And then you come. Jesus says, bring all your junk and just come on to me. I'm waiting on you right now. The spirit of God is saying to you right now, you know what? You don't have to surrender all that junk. You got to surrender your heart to Jesus. Let him worry about that junk. Because that's what he specializes. If we were waiting for, if God was waiting for all of us to get our junk right before we came to heaven, there would be nobody there but the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Because I promise you in this room, it is filled. At 9.30, it is filled. Folks watching on the line right now, thousands of people right now, you know what we know? We are all hypocrites, all of us. We have all fallen short of God's plan for our life, all of us, which means we all are in need of Jesus, the gift that God has given us to show that he loves us. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and you might have it in abundance. Jesus came to die for us. Romans 5, 8, what does it say again? While we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. It's the ultimate proof. Of love. It's the ultimate proof of how much he loves you. Watch this. If if there's anything tweetable from this statement, uh, from this sermon, it's this statement. Jesus loves you so much that he was willing to go to hell for you to keep you from going to hell without him. Is that not a beautiful picture? Jesus loves you so much that he was willing to go to hell for you rather than to go to heaven without you. I think that's one of the most beautiful pictures. This is how we know Every time I do a funeral and that casket is standing in front of a podium and I look to a group and I'll say, that's not them. If it was a follower of Jesus, I can say with absolute confidence, that's not your granddad, that's not your mom, that's not your sister, that's not your brother. That is simply a reminder that they have left this earth for to be absent of this body is to be present with the Lord. This is how we know God loves us because he forgives us when we ask him to. Isn't that beautiful? I mean, a lot of folks, I think, stay away from God because of whatever they've seen in some of us. The number one reason I believe people stay away from God is they know us. They're measuring how they view God based on my life or your life or my language or your language or or how you act or how I react or how we react or the way we are. And people all of a sudden start picturing, you know, if that's God, no thanks. Or, you know what, I've, I've prayed for months for that person and God didn't answer my prayer. So I've got nothing to do with God. I think a lot of folks stay away from God simply because he doesn't think God, they don't think God likes them. And yet the Bible is full of talking about how much God wants you to enjoy him. Did you know that Jesus talked more about happiness than he did heaven? Jesus talked more about your happiness, your joy in the Lord, more than he did the heaven that he's already promised you. In Romans chapter 10 Starting in verse nine, listen to what the text says. For if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Wow, how about that? Saved, raised from the dead. For it is by believing in your heart that you're made right with God and it is by confessing with your mouth that you are saved. What is it that's keeping you from a wonderful relationship with God, your creator? Probably pride, or maybe it's, I, I can't. I can't measure up to those people. Can I just let's take those off the table? First of all, we already know that God says He loves you no matter what. Yeah, we. I promise you, I'm with you. We can't measure up to God. This is why we want to call Him Dad and crawl up in His lap and talk to Him. And you know what? We're not, we're, we're never going to measure up to some other body, other person's standard, but. Think about this, believing in your heart that you're made right with God and confess with your mouth. God is saying, this is how you get right with me. This is how you know I love you, that everything you've done that is bad or poor, every bad decision, every selfish thought, every evil action, everything in our life. I sent Jesus, all you have to do is say, Jesus, forgive me. And the Bible says he will do that. I believe I'm living proof of that. Like Paul said, I am the chief of all sinners. I promise you I'm a mess. My life is a mess. I'm just grateful that I can hang on to a Lord who says, I love you. No matter what a mess you are, come walk with me. Let's get it right. What is it that's keeping you from a relationship with God? Because you see, there's never been a time in your life that he stopped loving you. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 17. Listen to what it says. And I pray that Christ will be more and more at home in your hearts and you trust in him. May your roots go down deep into the soil of God's marvelous love. And may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love really is. May you experience the love of Christ, though it is so great you will never fully understand it. Then you'll be filled with the fullness of life and the power that comes from God. I pray that you'd be able to feel how long and how wide and how deep and how tall God's love is for you. Back it was in the early 40s, and a man living in Europe had, had been left a, a, a large estate, a lot of money. And he began to invest that money in, into priceless pieces of art. And he filled his home to the degree that he had to build another home. And he, he placed all these expensive and, and, and irreplaceable pieces of art all around his home. His son had now grown to be about 17 years old and now his son had taken up this art business and that everybody in the museums and the art collectors and the dealers they he had gotten intimate friends with and, and, and they, their home was filled and above their mantle was a priceless piece of art that nobody could put a price tag on. But being in the 40s now, in the middle 40s, World War II had come along and that son had gone off to war. And about six or seven months later, that dad answered the door on Christmas Day to hear a message that your son has been killed in action in World War II. Naturally, this dad who was already a widow had grieved. This was his only son. It was the only family he had left. And this dad grieved and grieved and grieved, and and almost a year later to the day, he got another knock on the door, and it was somebody who said, Sir, your son saved my life. He carried me to a medic station when we were in the middle of battle, and I, I owe my life to your son. When we were together, he told me about your art collection. And he told me how much he loved you. And he told me how much you loved him. And he talked about art and what a, what a precious thing it was in your family. So, sir, I, you, he didn't know this, but, and you would have had no way to know this, but I'm a painter. And I've painted a picture of your son carrying me to the medic station. And I know it's not really great. It could never compare to all of these priceless pieces of art. But I wanted you to have this. And the man took the wrap picture and went and sat down in front of the fireplace. And he slowly opened it up. And he saw the picture of his son carrying that guy back to a medic station. And he was filled with emotion. The thought of, I remember my boy that way. He reached up and he took down that priceless painting above the mantle and set it down and relocated it. And he put that picture, that painting that soldier had made of his boy, right above the mantle. And day after day after day, he looked at that painting and he studied that painting. And he thought about that painting and he remembered the love of his boy. And then only about two years later, that man passed away. And all of that precious and priceless art was now according to his state to be sold and the money given to charity. And so the day had come and art collectors all over Europe had been told about the auction and the auctioneer got up and he wanted to start it. And he said, there's one painting not on your list that wanted to be sold and he wanted to make sure somebody bought it. And he pulled the picture and the painting that had been done by that soldier of his boy carrying to a medic stand. He put it on the tripod there and all the people thought, what a piece of junk. I, we want to get to the priceless stuff. We want to get to the stuff we can buy at a bargain. We want to get to the stuff that's museum worthy. And you bring that kind of paint by number kind of deal here, what are you thinking? But this one guy who worked at the, the studio there, who kind of swept floors and took care of things, said, I'll give you ten bucks for it. That's all I got, but I'll give you ten bucks. And after a few minutes of trying to get more, of that, that auctioneer hit the gavel and said, Sold. And that guy went up and he got that painting of that boy carrying that soldier. And the auctioneer looked at the crowd and he said, okay, the auction's done. And everybody was furious. What do you mean the auction is done? How could it be? And he said, well, the instructions in this guy's will were pretty clear. That if you want all the good stuff, you got to take the sun. And you can't have the good stuff without the sun. This guy gets it all. My friend, this is how God sees us. You are his masterpiece. You are the apple of his eye. You are the one that he gave his son for. And all he says is, I love you with an everlasting love. Come love me back. Father, thank you for your goodness, for your glory, for the love that you share with us, and for the recognition of how much your love means, not just in our day-to-day life, but in heaven. God, I know in a crowd like this, just like at 930, there are folks that today would say, Chuck, I need to do that. I wanna trust Jesus, I, I just don't know what to do, I don't know what to say. So if that's the desire of your heart while you sit here, let, let me just tell you what those words could be like, there's no magic in them. But you could say something like, Jesus, forgive me, I'm sorry, I've, I've, I've made a mess of some of my life, I've made some poor decisions. But would you forgive me for all of that? I wanna take you the son so I can have God and all his love. I wanna have life in abundance here and I wanna have life eternal in heaven. And I trust the fact that you died for me and you rose from the dead for me. It's payment for my sin. I want to turn around and live for you. I don't want to live for me anymore. And if that's the desire of your heart today, just let me know as you raise your hand so I can pray for you. Just let me know. Is that the desire of your heart today? Yeah. Amen. 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 Yeah. Folks all around this room. So, Lord, you, you know the desire of their heart. You know every hair on top of their head. You know every thought. God, would you fill this place and fill your people with an awe and a wonder of your goodness and your glory. And we pray that in the name of Jesus, our King, our Savior, and our Lord. Amen, amen, and amen. Thanks for listening to the Sugar Hill Church podcast. For more information and to find out more about our church, please visit us at sugarhillchurch.com.